Hello, I'm Mary Portis, and this is The Kindness Economy, a podcast that looks at the new values driving the businesses of tomorrow, people, planet, and profit. In that order, it's the future. Are you ready for better? I'm going to start with a story from my childhood. Oh, my kids will go, yeah, yeah, mum, we've heard this one before. And maybe many of you have heard this before, but I want to explain about value. You see, I didn't come from a middle-class background. My parents arrived in Watford in the late 50s as Irish immigrants and soon had a family of five to raise, five children, two-year, one-year gap, two-year, one-year gap, my poor mother. My dad worked in sales and my mother in the home, and money wasn't exactly growing on trees. But I never felt that we had less. My mother budgeted tightly, and I absorbed from her the concept of good value. Well... For me, at the time, some of it was stuff I didn't want, like a woolen jumper that she could darn or knit. But it also meant a less expensive cut of meat that she could put into a stew. It was also about more than just cost. It was about longevity and usefulness. And somehow, though, in the years since then, and this, believe me, is not me being nostalgic. Listen up carefully to this. The critical word good has been erased from our concept of value. Today, we've been taught to believe that value means cheap, or to use the marketing speak, affordable. This is noble according to the marketeers. They say it's about democratizing access to a whole range of stuff, but cheap costs us a lot. Every one pound spent on food by British consumers incurs an extra one pound of hidden costs, according to the Sustainable Food Trust. And this cost is passed right back onto us, whether that's sorting out the consequent health problems that people suffer because of bad, cheap food, or dealing with the terrible environmental impact. It's no different in fashion. It's the same. More than 30 billion worth of clothing sits at the back of UK wardrobes. 30 billion pounds worth of clothing. And that then becomes 140 billion pounds worth of clothing that we put into landfill each year. And it plays out elsewhere too, from the electronics that we almost take for granted will break and be replaced, to the plastic toys that get bashed up and thrown away in a heartbeat. And yet... We keep buying more each year because we can, because it's cheap. But it's doing nothing for society, nothing for the planet and nothing for people's well-being. We have the highest stats on overweight or obese adults. We have terrifying stats on young women and young men's well-being, depressive symptoms, buying more so that they can go on social media and show that they are okay. It's a stress, certainly, I never had in my youth. What are we doing? And so, we must integrate one crucial word into value that, for my mother's generation, automatically preceded it. Good. Good value is not just about a price, it's about a whole host of other factors. Usefulness, repairability, well-being, Healthy. Is this food good for me? Is this piece of item of clothing I'm buying going to be something I can have for a long while, pass on, recycle, upcycle, repair? 
And today, because we're living in a far more aware times than I was in the 70s with my parents, when my mother taught me about good value, it's about impact on planet and people too. Value isn't the same as cheap. Cheap is really expensive. And the cost is too high. The cost is far too high. I'm Mary Portas. Welcome to The Kindness Economy. Economy is brought to you by Dell Technologies. Hi, Mary. It's Paula here from Dell. What are you doing that just is part of the kindness economy? So my business is very new at Dell. Just to give you some context, my unit is a very new project within Dell. And I actually run a startup. And my boss, Ashlyn, who's amazing, and she just gave me a mission. And she go, I want you to go out there, transform the way that we connect with consumers and small businesses across Europe. So my task was to go in and find alternative routes to market. So new programs through online and offline and set up a team. So in January last year, there was me plus one. And by this year, we're 35 people. 50% of us are women. Yay! Bring it home, bring it home, bring it home. So I have four managers. Two of my leaders are women. So one is from Morocco leading an EMEA team. And the other is from Germany leading an EMEA team. So we're very diverse, culturally diverse. We are well balanced. And I love how actually the male collaborate really well with the women colleagues. I I had one of the comments that said, I'm so happy we have women leaders because they make me a better person. I have feelings towards my direct reports now. The Kindness Economy is brought to you by Dell Technologies. And this is why. Uh, Later on, I'll be talking to Richard Walker from Iceland. But first up, I want to talk to Emily because she's been out and about looking at what's been happening in the kindness economy this week. So, Emily, what have we got? Right. You know how we're big fans of language here at Portas? And we're also big fans of beauty. Um, There's a skincare brand called Unconditional Skincare Company. And they have just switched it up a bit with the language and they are not using any negative language. So anything that frames acne, redness, anything you can see on my face probably. The oh moment. My. <laughs> um, Broken veins. <laughs> exactly. Just the little lines. Anything on my face. The laughter um, lines. The laughter lines. Nothing exactly. to laugh about love. <laughs> <laughs> any of that shit. Um, do you know what? They're not framing it in a negative way. So they flip their language in a way that we've never seen before. Because you know, everything's about fixing, isn't it? Whenever yeah. you buy makeup, it's like repair. Yes. Fix. So what are they using? So then? they're using, so they've actually worked with psychologists about ways to say like, your skin is enough and this cream will help with this. But it's not about fixing. It's not about, you know, repairing or anything like that. It's about okay. just understanding that your skin is enough. Of course it is. Your skin is absolutely yeah. fine. Aging one, that's a nice one when you have that on the pot. That's nice. Aging skin. And that starts from what age? When you're in your 20s, really. Um, But yeah, just it's such a simple thing. Your face is enough. Oh, thanks, Mary. It really is. It's beautiful. (laughs) Yours too. (laughs) 
Well, today I'm talking to a man. He's a member of the Kindness Economy, and his name is Richard Walker, and he's managing director of Iceland, the company his father, Sir Malcolm, co-founded in 1970. Under Sir Malcolm's leadership, Iceland developed a device to extract damaging CFCs from freezers in the 1980s. And a decade later, they committed to removing all genetically modified ingredients from own brand products. And Richard is now taking this further, from palm oils to single-use plastic. He's committed to Iceland working in a way that supports the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Oh, and he's certainly created some kitback. The announcement of Iceland's pledge to remove palm oil from its products by the end of 2018 caused a stir. We will talk about that. Just listen. When you're doing something good, people love to come out and knock and try and catch you out. So you kind of think, well, I might as well be a bastard and continue on that way. But he didn't. Even Richard didn't listen to his dad, who apparently told him, stop trying to save the world and get out in the bloody shops. But he says... Iceland is not a sustainable business. It's far from it. We're a high volume, mass market food business, but we are trying to reduce our environmental impact and do some good for society. So just how is he going to do that? You know, I was really struck when I was reading up on on all that you're doing at Iceland. You come in for a lot of old stick, don't you, from the press, you know, I remember your big palm oil campaign on how you're going to cut palm oil and they started picking out how many items you still had. How many items have you cut palm oil out of, for example? Yeah, exactly. So 450 lines, but they were focusing on the 20 where we had a delay. Yeah. I mean, I hate it. I hate it. It's the insidiousness of the press because mm. we never showed the good side. And there's all these other you know, businesses who don't put their head above the parapet, not being pulled out. And I suppose... You know, why do you care so much? Is it worth it? Yeah, it's totally worth it. I mean, first of all, it's fun. And I like disrupting and throwing down the gauntlet and quite frankly, shaking things up. And I think that's also concurrent with Iceland's DNA. We're, uh, we're a disruptive company. We are different. We're privately owned and we've got a, a reverent personality. But actually, I'm so lucky to have inherited this business. I, I want to use the platform I've been given to drive change on issues I, I really care about. So that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. And I, I, I was laughing because, you know, obviously your father started the business and he'd give you a couple of hard times saying, oh, stop worrying about that, son. You know, get your head around the numbers. <laughs> yeah. How did... he's, a, he's from Yorkshire. He says, stop saving the world and get in the shops. Get in the shops. Well, you're doing getting in the shops and saving the world. We can do both, right? Mm. But are you, you started out as a little shelf stacker in 2012. I mean, that wasn't straight out of college. You've spoken, uh, you gave up a career in property and you spoke about... Having a bit of a crisis of confidence as Walker Jr. That's not an easy thing, is it, I guess? That, you know, the son who hadn't earned his place. Yeah. How did you claim it? Tell me how you did that. Yeah, well, that's why I thought it was really important to start properly and do a proper year in shops. Mm. And it was awkward for maybe an hour. Um, I told them who I was. You know, there was no secrets. But I just rolled up my sleeves and got stuck in. And... I learned so much from that experience. You know, I think any any politician should spend uh, some time working in Iceland because we're the perfect barometer of Britain. Um, but actually, you learn about camaraderie and you learn about, you know, what makes a good team and what makes a good manager. So it was absolutely essential to learn about the nuts and bolts of the business from the bottom up. I'm so glad I did it. I think respect is earned. 
And uh, you know, that was, that was the first rung of the ladder for me. It was, it was a really tough year, but it was also one of the most rewarding of my life, I think. I mean, supermarkets and the food industry are a huge and complex topic. So I'm going to try and mm. pick it apart a bit. And the first is Iceland has made some significant gains in sustainability. You've reduced carbon emissions by 74% since 2011, and all your electricity now comes from renewable sources. You also brought down food waste by 23% in two years, but there's still some tough challenges to crack. Plastic's a huge one. And you've talked about how difficult it is meeting your commitment to be plastic-free in your own label range. Um, You've obviously got the vision of what you need to do, but what's stopping you in some instances of realising it? And how do you go about convincing customers to embrace what you're doing if it affects the in-store experience or price? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I know there's lots of questions here. It's a tough one, but we're all going to have to, you know, you are about price, but we are all going to have to accept changes to what we've been used to, aren't we? Yeah, we are. And we all have a role to play. I think it's driven by the supermarkets. You know, customers didn't choose necessarily to have everything bagged and wrapped and coated in plastic. And we've become lazily addicted to this miracle material, but we're um, abusing it. And, uh, you know, something that is used so fleetingly, like a plastic water bottle, that momentary convenience of 30 seconds a minute will last for half a millennia. Um, So we've really got to kind of reassess how we're using this material. Customers absolutely have a role to play. Um, Business has a role to play. And I think government does as well to legislate accordingly. And it's great to finally see some proper taxation coming in on plastics because when I first made the pledge to get out of plastics, I always say if I was the boss of Tesco, I'd be sacked because we're loading up millions of pounds of cost onto the business. But um, actually now my finance director is the biggest supporter of uh, getting out of plastics because um, it's about cost. And the uh, packaging taxes that are coming in will be tens of millions of pounds a year unless we start to dramatically reduce our plastic tonnage. Now, we are making great progress. We've uh, reduced our tonnage by 50% since I made the pledge in 2018. But of course, the second hardest 50% is to come. And some of those areas I don't even have solutions for yet. But I'd much rather have 30,000 people pointed at a North Star and know the direction that we're trying to get to and galvanise them around that goal rather than wait for someone else to impose it upon me. And one thing I've learned with our loose veg trial, our customers love pre-packaged convenience because they want to get in and out as quickly as possible, as cheaply as possible. So we have to iterate. And now we're doing a trial that's pre-packaged again, but it's in paper as opposed to plastic. And that seems to be working. I remember then you um, did this. I met my friend, Sean Sutherland, who was oh, doing yeah. the plastic. Yeah, yeah she's and great. Yeah, exactly. And you were the first. And she got in touch with me and said, Mary, I need your help on this. Will you give a voice? And I said, well, who, who's on the supermarkets? that's coming behind this. And she said, Iceland. And it really touched me then. I was like, really? And who are the rest? But you put your head above the parapet and they knock your little face, don't they? I know, the press, exactly. Because they want to find out. And actually, what you say is we're on a journey. Do you you know the North Star. Yeah. Go on. Do, you, do you think that's a bit of institutional snobbery by the press? Because I got such a kicking over palm oil. And, you know, every trial we do that doesn't work on plastics, they sort of relish the fact that Iceland uh, has failed. And I just wonder if this... A bit of snobbery there. Do you know, I think it's one of the things that we need to look at within the kindness economy. Let's look at business first. But I think we need to look at journalism and the press and the power of the press because all they genuinely care about is what's the angle, the downside. Mm. You know, look at it. Look at the biggest selling newspaper, the bar of shame on the Daily Mail. You turn every page on those papers and it's about 
let's just have a dig and undermine something good. Mm. So I'm sorry, I think they need to change. And I think the more we talk about this stuff and call them out, and even though you'll be a disruptor and we are the people on the planet at the moment who are fighting those. Like I get interviews done, just had one done the other weekend on my book. The sub headline was about my divorce and who has custody of the kids. <laughs> I mean, go sit on the proverbial rusty nail. Yeah. This is a decent sort of magazine, but that's what people want to know, Mary. Mm. So I don't even think it's snobbery. I just think that they actually, you know, we've got this editorial way of doing stuff that's actually just an insidious way of pulling down. And that's the word. It, it is insidious because, yeah. you know, if you look at the environmental crisis, we don't have time. You know, we've, no. we've got 10, 10 years left to try and turn the ship around. And we need to be kind of creating and fostering a culture where business uh, businesses are applauded and encouraged to take positive action as opposed to just tripped up and looking for that inevitable gotcha moment. Look, we have come from a place where power, fame and money were the tenets of success. So, you know, you know, it was the people who made the most money that got knighted. It didn't matter what they were doing to the planet or their people. And we won't give those names out now, but it wouldn't be difficult to work out who they were, some of them. Not your father included in this. Um, <laughs> so, so this is a real shift. The people, this, this is not being acknowledged at the moment. It might have yeah. been small, but it's not big enough. So the pain, you know, you're ready for the fight and you just have to connect back to yourself and say, I'm doing the right thing. I might not yeah. be 100% getting there, but I'm doing the right thing. But I, I, one other thing I want to talk to you about is the environmental aspects of frozen food. Is that something you work on educating about? Because frozen food creates far less waste. Mm. It's transported by sea, so the carbon emissions are lower. Yeah. And it's often got this higher nutritional value. Exactly. And yet we don't know, but we don't know it, you see. And do you think we all need to get more educated on this? Because... It's got a bit of a reputation problem. It does. It does. I think it's yeah. a bit. It's seen as a bit of frozen. That's cheap. You're not buying fresh, and you're not cooking from fresh. Yeah, you're right. In this country, um, we think we know about food, but actually, our entire kind of approach is is the wrong way around. And you're right. Frozen equals cheap and poor quality in many yeah. people's eyes. Get those now, old I... frozen burgers out, love. Yeah, exactly. I know that now, sounds really horrible. Yeah, the way no, saying that, but it is that, that's and that's why think. you talk about yeah. the snobbery. Yeah. And, and we, we've probably made that bed a bit. You know, we've had Kerry Katona on our ad campaigns and yeah. we had a certain style through the 80s. But actually, if you go to France, Picard, who are, you know, a, a fabulous retailer, frozen specialists, people will boast about having a Picard dinner party. And it's all frozen ready meals, but they know the nutritional value. They know that you eliminate food waste because you just use what you need and then, and then freeze the rest. And they know it tastes better as well. So, yeah, I think we've got a, a big educational piece to do. How can those wonderful government that we have, Richard, let's talk about them. How could they help business like yours in your efforts? Um, I, I think actually, you know, I'm, I'm obviously a free marketeer and a capitalist. But actually, when it comes to the environmental emergency, I actually believe in more government intervention. Yeah. You know, I think not having enough of a framework is, is quite frankly wrecked the planet. Now, I don't think we need to change the system, but I think we need to change how we do the system. And ultimately, what we need from government is for them to be rewarding businesses on how environmentally and socially beneficial they are. And they need to start taxing things we don't want, like pollution, and they need to stop taxing things we do want, like jobs. So I, I think, you know, if, if we can create a better framework for the market to operate within, then we can really start to accelerate change. 
And what are you doing on things like meat provenance and higher sustainable standards for fish, for instance? Yeah, so we've, um, I mean, it's interesting on fish, actually. I've, I've watched Seaspiracy, um, mm. as have many people. And I think MSC as an accreditation scheme leads a lot to be desired. But that's like many accreditation schemes. They're not perfect. But I think they need to do a much better job of giving customers confidence that that blue tick actually means something. Now, we were nowhere with MSC and we've worked really hard. I've really pushed it over the last couple of years. We're their highest kind of ranking newcomer you know, very soon all of our fish will be MSC accredited. And that's great, but actually they've got more to do on things like bycatch and uh, accreditation. Um, In terms of meat, our supply chains are actually very short. You know, we're a family business. We tend to work with um, other family businesses, particularly on frozen. And our provenance is is good. You know, we're moving to 100% British on pretty much everything now. Um, And I think that's what customers demand and expect now. And that's not about being on a budget or, you know, being a value retailer. Actually, I think everyone is aspirational. Everyone wants the best quality possible food they can get. And interestingly, our fastest growing category is now our plant-based range of of meals. Uh, A brand called No Meat that we created from nothing. We've just sold it actually to Live Kindly. And now it's being sold into Walmart and even competitors here in the UK. But there's loads of innovation going on in there. And that's now the widest range of frozen plant-based foods in the world. So we're really proud of that. And it's something we're investing in quite heavily. I tried your burger. Do you remember when you did, you were the first to do it. What was it called? Noble Burger. (laughs) Noble Burger. And I did it for What Britain Bought. And I remember it was like amazing. And I brought some home and cooked it for the kids. Really great. You know, look, I'm going to go back on the the headlines you made over palm oil gate. And I just Mm. feel your pain on this. But you committed to removing it all from your own brand products by the end of 2018. And then the BBC got in and you had made changes to 450 products, but there was 15 that was outstanding. I mean, there is this sort of, it's damned if you do and it's damned if you don't, isn't it? Mm. How did you balance that? Was there a time where you just thought, shit, am I going down the road rightly here? Because there are times when you just think, oh my God, it would be easier just to, you know, not not fight this crap. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And, and palm oil really blew up into a bit of a geopolitical drama as well. Yeah. My wife was followed on the streets and had a, um, a stranger take photos of her uh, without her permission. I was told to watch out for people with long lenses. I'm banned from going back to Indonesia. The Malaysian government wrote to the foreign office and asked them to tell me to stop my campaign because I think they have a slightly different view of how democracy works. Um, it, it suddenly blew up into a big thing. And then you know, I kind of expected all of that because Greenpeace had warned me. What I didn't expect was such hostility from the UK media or parts of it. But I think you, you said it earlier, if you know you're on the right track and you're doing the right thing, then you've just got to keep that faith and keep going. I hated the way that it was reframed that we'd failed. We hadn't failed. We just gave our suppliers a few months more to get there. And now everything's palm all free. But of course, the media kind of spun it um, a different way. But I'm super proud of what we achieved, regardless of that. You know, that was a small blip. You know, what we did, especially when that ad was banned and went viral, Google searches of the phrase palm oil went up 10,000%. Before our campaign, no one was talking about palm oil. Afterwards, everyone was talking about palm oil. And importantly, people like our customers, who sometimes environmentalism isn't exactly top of their hierarchy of needs. And actually, they wanted to know where it was from and why it's causing habitat loss for the orangutan and what they can do about it. And it genuinely, I think, helped drive the industry to new policies on on deforestation, which ultimately is why we did it. 
Just on that, I know this. I mean, you might go, oh, God, this is a bit deep. But it's like that pain, because having sometimes been through that when you're in the public eye and... Uh, mm. And you read, and you, I remember factually reading something, with, and it was a whole piece for me, double page, and I thought there's 17 facts in there that are just not true, just not yeah. true. Um, how did you, because you're not a public figure, you know, how did you manage that? Is there, do you have a spiritual side? I mean, do you connect? Do you meditate? Do you, is there something that you go into where you just connect with and, uh, yourself deeply and go, I know I'm doing the right thing here? Yeah, I break my life down into three key elements as work, but there's family and that's obviously super important. And um, my wife is very good at always keeping me on, on the right track and, and questioning, you know, holding a mirror up to me as well and asking mm. what my motivation is to do some of this stuff. And then finally, you know, there's personal uh, investment as well. And for me, um, surfing is a super important part of my life. I'm chairman now of Surfs Against Sewage. Um, it's something where I've always found kind of a, a sense of mindfulness mm. and calm um, and I also do a lot of climbing and I've, I've sort of been on expeditions all over the world. And I think, you know, those two things actually do keep me centred and grounded. And what is so important is somehow in this crazy life to try and always make time for, for stuff like that as well. I guess when you're doing that, you're actually totally in the moment. You say in this mindfulness, you're actually connecting truthfully to your inner yeah. energy source, whatever it is. And it's, was, a, it's a form of meditation. You know, when yeah. you're doing that, you're not thinking about anything else. You're just in the moment. I was talking to the uh, owner of Rafa, Simon, and he exactly says that when he cycles. And therefore, that energy goes into his business as opposed to the shit that comes from yeah. without. And I worry that um, so much of what goes on in the press will put small business owners off even trying to do better. And your book really dives into what they can do on the environmental stuff. And you've got a line in there. No one should assume their business is too small to make a difference. I love that. And I, I keep banging on about that. And again, one of the people I've interviewed, Juliet Davenport, who has some good energy, you know, and she went into the energy business. Can you imagine going into that yeah. and go, uh, how about if we did it this way and try and, and, and look at, you know, saving our planet and the old fossils that were in there just nearly knocked her teeth out, you know? This isn't about huge, sweeping, daunting change. It's about going on the journey, isn't it? Absolutely. And I was super keen in the book to continually pull references to small businesses, because I think that's where most of the interesting ideas come from. It's certainly where most of the energy comes from. But actually, 95% of the global economy is small business. And therefore, if small business doesn't act, then we really are screwed. So I wanted to not make it just a book about me or Iceland, but show how everyone can do something. And that's why I continually pull on examples of, of companies I love that are doing incredible disruptive things that don't turn over four billion pounds a year. Um, so, yeah, I've just got to pause for one second. Of course, it's the doorbell. It's got to answer it. Love yeah. that. Go on, Richard. Don't worry. We love this. Done. Is that the company that begins with an A, Richard? No, no, it's, it's a heck. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. He's just a I, actually. I tell you. I tell you what it is, though. Um, Go on, and, tell me. But lots of yeah. repeated. Yeah. It's Dalesford, but it's not their food. It's some crockery from Dalesford for this house. Why is that not to be repeated? I love Dalesford. <laughs> I know, but the bloke from Iceland's like shopping, you know, elsewhere. Although Iceland ah, doesn't no, sell crockery. No, actually, actually, no. Hang on. I'm gonna. I'm gonna keep this in, and I'm gonna come back to you, and I'll send it to you. Because okay. here's the thing. I'm gonna ask you on that. The bloke from Iceland who's got loads of money who can make these claims and, you know, once he's up there, 
can say, oh, let's save the planet because he's all right. Mm. How do you answer that? Because this is where the difficulty comes, isn't it? Yeah. There's the bloke with all the money from Iceland who's able to have Dalesford delivered and he's not using his own brand, but like, so bloody what? How do you answer that in terms of what about us who don't have money? Because isn't saving the planet more expensive? Yeah, it is. And, and that's why it's true. The, the, kind of <laughs> the, the challenge you put out there, environmentalism is very middle class. You know, I, I poke fun at Greenpeace because they would call our customer base the hard to reach. And that's the big challenge of the book is to show how or, or to investigate and unpack exactly how we're going to democratize environmentalism and make it relevant and relatable to real people like our customers who might only have 25 quid a week to spend on food. And, and how and do you do that, though? How do you do that? Because you must be doing that because you are delivering great food mm. because looking at the stats on obesity in this country on cheap fast food yeah. looking at the stats of how we're ruining this planet on cheap fast fashion mm. yeah how are you bridging that i i think um part of it is is easier for us because we can take a long-term view we're privately owned we don't have to continually appease city shareholders yep. and you know uh, short-termism in many many different senses has a lot to answer for and when you consider the average shareholding on the FTSE 100 is about 26 seconds, uh, probably a computer rather than a, um, a trader. Um, I don't think they really care about the company's uh, CSR policies or you know, how environmentally kind they're being or what they're doing to put back to society. And therefore, I think you know, whatever, whatever ownership structure you are, whatever type of business you are, big or small, you need to be able to think long term because ultimately, you know, that's that's also good for business. We have a great saying in Iceland, we're long term greedy. <laughs> and, you know, we, we try and make all our decisions for the long term because we know that ultimately it pays. Jam tomorrow. Jam tomorrow. Exactly. But I think also we need to be more embracing of ambiguity and nuance and hard choices. You know, um, there's a great example of the uh, people of Whitehaven. I talk about this in the book, but environmentalists are outraged that the government has just uh, given a license for the first deep coking coal mine for uh, 20 years. But then you go to Whitehaven, there's no employment there. That's literally, you know, the only chance they've got of job security for a generation. So who's to tell them that, you know, we, we can't open a coal mine in Whitehaven? And I think we've got to reframe environmentalism, not talk about cost and compromise, but jobs and opportunity. Yes. And I love when you talked about, I mean, our community, but I loved also when you talked about British. I mean, do you think there's going to be a return to our local farmers really being able to deliver and keep our supermarkets in food? Yeah, I, I absolutely believe we've got a once in a generation opportunity now. We're out of Europe. We're we're out of the common agricultural policy, which was all driven around, you know, excess production and how much volume you can get out. And actually now, you know, the environmental land management scheme, which UK farmers are working towards, if we can make that as ambitious as when Michael Gove announced it in 2017, we really have an opportunity to redirect farming subsidies around being good environmental stewards, uh, restoring biodiversity and producing locally for British people. And do you think that's really feasible? I'm just digressing slightly, but my daughter works for the Food, Farming and Countryside Commission looking at this as oh. a researcher, you know? Okay. And she says, so difficult, Mama, it's so difficult <laughs> getting this through. Do you yeah. think government are really going to help with this? You know, when I start to see about Australian chickens or American mm. beef, I'm like, oh, please, there is this opportunity, as we call it at Porters, the plastic hours, to make change. Yeah, 
Are you getting involved in that at all? Are you? Yeah, totally. You know, I, I sit on uh, DEFRA's Council for Sustainable Business. Um, I work, you know, quite closely with, with government and, and politicians. And I, I think that's important, actually, you know, that we, we do try and work towards solutions and collaborate with them. But yeah, I think it's absolutely possible. And you look at some of the people in the cabinet, you know, Zach Goldsmith, committed environmentalist. He understands. He's always about... been like that. He was brilliant. On yeah. my He's a brilliant man. Yeah. He's amazing. And, There's some other you know, idiots he... in there, though. I mean, <laughs> has he true. got enough of a voice? So, no, I know, because I like... And is Gove still there? Is he still doing that? Is that his job still, Gove? No, he he's... he uh, somewhere he's, else? Yeah, Dutchie Lancaster now, so he's got a bit of a roving role. But you've got George Eustace, he's, he's Environment Secretary. And... Is he all right? Is Eustace all right? He's from... Okay. No, he's okay. He's from Cornwall, in fact. Oh, we must be good then down there yeah, where exactly. you are right now. <laughs> um, finally, a question that I ask all my guests. What would the kindest economy look like to you if it was really in action in five or ten years? I think what we're starting to see now is an awareness from business that we must change and some pretty grand pronouncements around net zero, carbon negative. But I think what we now need as an industry is more coalescing. Um, we have so many different trade bodies, so many different targets. Nothing is um, contextualized because everything is different. And we've got COP coming up, uh, the environmental, the Global Environment Summit in Glasgow in November. And I think that's a real chance for the food industry to come together and create a common set of targets and goals that we can measure and I think if we can be more transparent about our food waste, our plastic footprint, exactly how much we're producing, how much carbon, you know, all of this stuff, if that can all be measured and monitored and we work together, I think we've genuinely got an opportunity to, to do what people are now pledging to do, which is to tread lighter on the planet. And how do you think your competitors are doing? I mean, how is the food industry as a whole responding to this? I mean, what, what's been their response to what you're doing at Iceland? Well, well, the food industry, you know, is a disproportionate um, culprit for carbon emissions. You know, I think it's it's uh, 30 to 40 percent of all global greenhouse gas emissions and every element of food production from the fertilizer to put on fields right through to the last mile kind of delivery in the van to the customer's home. Every element of the food process belches out methane and carbon. So we have a lot to do. But looking at it positively, that's also a disproportionate opportunity to try and change. Uh, and I think there's now an awareness and a, a real kind of deeper understanding that we must change. And you look at some of the stuff now around regenerative farming. I talked about the environmental land management scheme and some of the big commitments now by supermarkets. I think it's great. And that's why on Twitter, you know, I'm always the first to applaud Tesco if they announce they're going to get out of a billion pieces of plastic or Morrison's if they say that all of their meat is going to be uh, carbon neutral by a certain date. You know, I, I think we need more action because more action means that it'll make our job of all the commitments that we've made easier and cheaper and we can do it quicker. And the last word on that, I'd like to say to anyone listening, if you're a journalist, which a lot of people do to my podcast, listen to what he's just said. He applauds his competitors. He applauds them. He doesn't try and undermine them and say, look what they're not doing. He says, look what they are doing. And on that note, Richard Walker, I say thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Keep it Likewise. up, mate. Keep it up. <laughs> I will. Two things struck me after I was talking to Richard. And the first is... Well, we all know this one. You put your head over that parapet and you come in for a lot of criticism. But the great thing about him is he kept going and he keeps going and he slightly enjoys it. 
He believes in what he's doing. He's got a vision. He's got a purpose, a real belief. Remember how I talk about philosophy in business? This isn't just, oh, this is a purpose that goes up as a note or a sight reading on your social media. This is a belief system that runs through the business. Next week, I'll be talking to Eric Collins, CEO of Impact X Capital Partners, a venture capital firm founded by people including Sir Lenny Henry and Ursula Burns, the first black woman CEO to head a Fortune 500 company. And together, they're looking to change the investment status quo that sees just 1% of venture funding going to black entrepreneurs and only 4% to women. (laughs) I've long held an interest in financial return, but also the ability to deliver some sort of positive, measurable social impact, says Eric. Yeah. Of course. Hear, hear. Come on, Eric. We want to hear more. That's next week on The Kindness Economy with me, Mary Portas.